Disclosure, the information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, any and all information presented in this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making any decision. And we're back. Ben Keedy here again with another episode of the Wealth Crypto Podcast. This time I have on my friend Larry Chambray. He has an extensive background in technology and financial services. Um, most recently, a lot of you probably know him as Totem Risk, but these days he is at a new company of his called Presults. But we get into all this in the show. So without much further ado, we will jump into it. Thanks. Three. Two, one, and we are live. What's up, Larry? Hey, how are you, Ben? Good. Good to see you. Where uh, whereabouts are you today? I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. It's a home home for me for a while. Uh, always been, you know, pretty much remote employee my whole uh, entre- yeah. employee slash entrepreneur my whole life. So yeah, uh, this isn't new to me you know, working from home. But uh, that's this is where I've been the majority of my career is in Atlanta. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, maybe just for everyone who doesn't know who you are, maybe start with just, you know, the quick resume walkthrough and we can go from there. Yeah. So right out of college, I worked for you know, Big Blue IBM back in the day uh, for a number of years. Got my feet wet, uh, learned uh, the ropes and technology, software, hardware back then, you know, the old AS400s and RS6000s. Uh, really learn the business processes through IBM, and that's really that really built a foundation for the rest of my career. Uh, I really I always had a passion to get into finance, so eventually I moved to New York City and worked for Mainstay Investments on the wholesaling side, and then uh, kind of bounced around with you know Schwab, learned a little bit more at, at Charles Schwab, uh, and then got in, back into the technology side with um, with Morningstar. And after a while. I worked for companies that were growing quickly on the fintech side and wound up exiting. So after the, the, the you know two exits in a row, I was like, hmm, maybe I have some ideas that, that I should do myself. And that's when uh, I, we built Totem Risk with a yep. few partners and exited that. And now I'm on to my, my next <laughs> endeavor, which is Presults, which is uh, all tailored around compliance, email archiving, social media, SMS texting. Which is really top of mind these days, and um, and we're continuing to grow. We're growing. This this is probably the fastest, you know, next to maybe e money, uh, the fastest growing firm uh, that I've that I've been part of to build. So we're really excited about what we're doing here. Cool. Yeah. So maybe walk me through a little bit about just what's going on with pre-solds. Like maybe at the highest level, like what is pre-solds? What's the value prop for advisors? And then how are things going with? The company today. What's you know the funding environment like? You know macro affecting you guys at all? Just walk us through it. Sure. Yeah. So you know after I, I sold Prezel or sold Totem, um, I started to look at what's what's my next idea that I want to come up with, and everything that I was thinking about. And I'm looking at the Kitches charts and and talking to Joel Brunkenstein. There was just it was just so saturated. The whole fintech market was so saturated with products that it's hard to come up with something new that's exciting yeah. and that's going to change like what everyone else is doing today. Unless it's like 
breakthrough blockchain machine learning AI technology that no one has really, you know, perfected yet or yeah, yeah. done. It's kind of said, but not really there yet. So um, even chat GPT is like, eh, <laughs> yeah, are, are we ready for it? <laughs> very, very new. Right? And it's not answering all the questions yet. So yeah, what I did, same thing I did before um, with Totem was I went back to the market and I asked financial advisors, REAs, brokers, everyone like that I knew in the industry, what's a pain point for you today? What What is something that you know could be solved or if it was built correctly? And what I kept hearing over and over again was that the compliance area was, was very difficult to work with, right? Those products. And more specifically, when it came to the SEC 17A-4 rule around record keeping and archiving and monitoring communication with clients, which is tailored around email, uh, social media, and even your website, and then finally SMS and texting, text messages. So basically, I start asking a lot of advisors the same thing, like, is this an area that you struggle with? And everyone, there wasn't one person that said no, like, yeah, no. I'm fine. This is great. Everything's good, right? Which was shocking because I never heard that before. Usually it's like 50-50 or something like that, or you know, no, everybody's happy with what they have, which never happens. But when everyone's telling you the same thing that, hey, this is an area where these products are old legacy products that are very difficult to use, they're really expensive, and they're not tailored specifically to the financial sector, right? So when they log in, they see things around HIPAA and education and government yeah. and whatnot. And they said, if you could build a more modern, easy to use archiving solution at a lower price point specific to the financial sector, all encompassing, of course, uh, they, were, they were like, we would, we would move today or tomorrow, right? So that's what Prezilt is. That's what we built. We built a new, modern, easier to use archiving compliance solution for the financial industry. Okay. Okay. There's a lot to kind of unpack there for sure. <laughs> Advisors generally are not fans of compliance, even though they, they know they need it and it keeps them within the rails, so to speak. But over my time, I've certainly learned how challenging it can be. Um, so it's interesting that you go from, I mean, you, it sounds like you're building the company the smart way, right? You ask people what their problem is, you listen, but then you have to go execute. So you hear that compliance is a problem. How do you then go from, okay, here's something to attack. How do I create an MVP, create a company, go to market? What was that journey like for pre-sales? Yeah, so I, I actually got lucky in that whole process because I was building out the business plan, how to, you know, what what's the MVP going to look like, um, looking at the total addressable market, you know, who are the players, who are the compliance consultants, who do I need to partner with, et cetera. And during that time, um, I received a, a LinkedIn uh, message. And I, I get a lot of them, but this one kind of stood out for some reason. Yeah. And I clicked on it and it was a product manager up in New York City who had basically already built what I was going to build, right? So Prezilts was already built before I could even build it. But at the time it was, hey, we just launched this product. We have 20 or 30 clients and we don't know anybody in this industry. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so, who do we talk to? <laughs> they're like, are you interested in an advisory board position or coming on as like a, an executive? Or And I said, well, show me more of the product. And, when they showed me the the UI and the UX, I was just blown away. I'm like, this is exactly what I was going to build. It's simple. It's easy. 
And you know, you already have a price at the right price point. So then I just bought into the company and uh, then put the, the business plan to work and start executing, right? And the one thing I learned at, at Totem and other companies, I also had like a, a hedge fund, a crypto digital asset hedge fund that, that I would say failed, right? <laughs> As an entrepreneur, you're not going to win them all, but um, yeah. we can talk about that a little bit later. But the, the other thing I learned from that, as well as Totem and some of the, the you know, investments and any um, money was that, you know, when you're starting out and you're, you're executing a plan, uh, you don't need it to necessarily rush out and get capital, right? Or ask for friends and family. You can pretty much bootstrap it at the beginning if you, if you stay focused on, on the revenue part, right? If you, once you build a product, the next step is to really focus on marketing the product and getting it out in front of advisors and compliance officers, whoever your target market is, and try to grow the revenue. Like just roll up your sleeves. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're taking a step back uh, if you're an entrepreneur that has been in executive roles or management roles, but you you have to wear many hats as an entrepreneur. And for it to work, if you could focus on the revenue and marketing the product the right way, then you have a path to profitability. Also, it's very difficult to go out in the market and even ask for capital if you don't have revenue, right? Yeah. And yeah. if you have very little revenue on yeah. top of it, right? Everyone's like giving you the Heisman. It's not even you're not even getting in the door. Um, and then, you know, if, if you've been in the market for a while, you know, most venture capital firms are like, call us back when you have a million in ARR or X amount of clients, et cetera. So really, the, the, the main thing that we focused on at the beginning is finding the right partners on the compliance side with um, compliance consultants, compliance platforms, compliance consultants in the marketplace that are working with advisors. And then also make sure that we're on all the right platforms, the Schwab's, the Fidelity's. You know, trade PMR, et cetera, so we could sell into those RAAs and also be promoted, you know, through their platform. So that was really step one in in, in with Prezolts is focusing on the revenue and, and growing those partnerships. And then step two is to start to build out the team and then start to look at do we bring in any capital if needed and what what is that capital going to be used for? Yeah. So I wanted to go back to building or getting those initial revenue streams up and off the ground. Obviously, you've been in the industry a long time, so I'm sure that helped a lot in terms of reaching out to people. But did what was like the specific sort of strategy about going and getting that initial revenue? Um, did you have certain sort of routes you were going, or was it just run the Rolodex? Well, they already had, uh, the team already had, uh, or the partners, had about 20 to 30 clients and they were all RAAs basically okay. for the most part. They had some partnerships, you know, built with some compliance consultants. So it was taking those partnerships and enhancing them and growing those partnerships, uh, whether it's us marketing that those consultants um, or their, their platform, and then us marketing, you know, results as well. And then the second step was utilizing my network that I already had. So going out to um, you know the the custodians and broker dealers and other fintech platforms, and explaining what we're doing, how we're different, right? And then that you know led into them passing us leads and us being able to really market specifically to those RAAs to generate interest as well as you know start to build a pipeline and uh, close some deals for, for to generate that revenue. So it's really just you know your basic blocking and tackling at the beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, and then now it's like, well, now, but 
four or six months after that was we were able to okay now we could start bringing on you know sales and marketing professionals that could target this full time and we could start doing other things that that we need to do to build a company yeah, yeah. and pre i was just looking on linkedin here when did you officially sort of launch pre-sold so that was like right in the middle that was like core pandemic wasn't it a little, yeah, pretty much a little bit after that. So July 21 was when um, we brought on our first client. Yeah. Um, yeah. So a little slow growth as, as you know, most firms are. Uh, and then as soon as we, I came on board in February, put uh, that plan into place, we start to execute. By the time we got to summer of 2022, uh, the word started to get out and we were starting to bring on a lot of clients. And then we continue to grow the team, add other sales and marketing uh, personnel and resources, add more to the development side. And now we're at the point where we're bringing on at least one new advisory firm a day, uh, sometimes more, uh, with an average of about 12 users per advisory firm. So we, we, we hit our, our stride. And now it's like, let's continue to build that to get the profitability. And if we could get the profitability in the next six to nine months, then we could contemplate, do we continue to just grow the way we're growing, or do we go out and raise a Series A to really explode and, and get this uh, you know, throughout the whole market? Yeah. Yeah. So so what is, I guess, next steps for results if you think a year to two years out? Where do you guys want to go? What do you want to do? Yeah. Well, right now, it's one of the critical parts is once you get to about 250000 in revenue, and you, you're you're growing. You're starting to get a lot more feedback because you have a lot a lot more clients. Yeah. And you're starting to hear like what they like and what they don't like. So what we did earlier this quarter is we start to have conversations with some of our key clients, and then you know pretty much any client that wanted to provide feedback, and we consolidated that into our roadmap and into a spreadsheet. And we have like a list of I think we had a, like we pretty much had a list of fifty. Um, features and functionality that we could add to the workflow. Um, <clears throat> of course, we're not going to add every little detail, but the ones that we kept hearing over and over again, we've gone back and we start to add all those those features and functionality to enhance the efficiencies of, of the workflow for the end user, right? And then also hear from them, like, what channels are we missing? Like, what do we need that we don't have today? So one thing was, Yes, we have the social social media connections, but we don't have the direct messaging connection. Like we're not archiving that, so we had to go back and start archive and, and develop, right? Put that into the roadmap, and then say, okay, how long is this going to take? On top of the features, and build that out. So really, this you know, this quarter and next quarter are focused on adding that those features and functionality, and continuing to build out the product with the right channels that all the advisors are asking for. So for instance, like WhatsApp was big, <clears throat> SMS was big, um, M uh, Microsoft uh, MS Teams was big. So we added all those channels and, and the features and functionality to archive that data. And now it's just continuing to do that for the next, through, the, through Q2. And then the second half of the year, our focus is going to shift back to what we really feel will widen the moat uh, compared to our competitors uh, and give us a competitive advantage is focusing more on machine learning and AI. Like our our developers and our, our chief technology officer, George, he his last company was built all around blockchain and AI and machine learning, and they exited that company a few years ago. 
So his team, he and his team are chopping at the bit to get back into yeah. the machine learning kind of uh, AI area. But when it comes to that, it's just like, you can't just say you're going to do it. There has to be a use case for it or use cases to build out to make the product more efficient for the advisor or the end user. And right now, we've only seen or heard of two really key use cases to use machine learning. And of course, I'm sure we'll hear more. But until we have some other core use cases, we're going to focus on those two uh, during the second half of the year. And then we really feel that that will separate us from our competitors by a long shot. Right. So we're really excited about getting there. But we still have to do some of the key, still have to add some of the key functionality to the product to continue to grow until we get there. How uh, you kind of touched on some buzzwords there, machine learning, blockchain, you know, you could throw in AI, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what, what do you guys think of as a technology company as it relates to just kind of like the pace of these new groundbreaking techs that we continue to see? Like, how does that influence, I guess, your development cycle and then also where you think the product should go? And then maybe even more broadly, just financial services in general, where does where what do we look like in five years? No, that's a, that's a great question. Five years from now is uh, when it comes to technologies, like a lifetime away, right? Yeah, um, <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, my kids never—they didn't. I mean, I didn't grow up with the technology my kids have. And you know, when I was in college, it was like the internet just came out, and I was emailing my parents, and they thought that was the coolest thing ever. Yeah. So you know, five years from now is kind of crazy to think about. You know, where machine learning and AI will take us, right? Uh, we're, we're hearing a lot about it. It's a, it's a big buzzword. It's just, I was at T3 a week or two weeks ago, whenever it was, I lose track of time. Yeah. And the, the, it was all about cybersecurity and, uh, and, and, and machine learning and, and AI. But again, at the end of the day, like, what's the use case for it? It doesn't fit into every, uh, every product. It doesn't fit into every company, right? There has to be something that you're solving for when you're when you're talking about machine learning or ai right and usually the majority of the time it's how do we make the processes more efficient and easier uh for the consumer or end and client right um and until you know what that is and, and you could put your finger on and say this is exactly what we're, we're going to do and enhance it the second part that, that's probably the hardest is Finding the developers that really know how to build it, right? Yeah. <laughs> there's 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 not many of them out there that it's not like going and find uh, you know something that could write Java code or or Python or something like that sure. or React for the front end. Uh, machine learning and AI is a little bit different, so um, I think companies will struggle once they figure out what what it is, what that use case is, who do who who develops it, right? And and a lot of times would. I think specifically in machine learning early on, we might see a lot more buying than building. So a lot of entrepreneurial startups that know how to build machine learning uh, you know, code and technology and AI technology, those companies will probably be acquired. <laughs> yeah. Compared Chat G- to... Chat GPT. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Like that or any of the other ones, right? So <clears throat> you know, that, that's where I could see that. On the, on the flip side of this, you also have a lot of companies that we don't talk about in financial technologies like Google and Apple, yeah. uh, Amazon. Yeah. Those companies, they have huge development teams. They have experience already in machine learning AI. So 
that's the kind of the one thing that I keep my eye on is like, what are they doing? Like, what's IBM doing? What's Microsoft doing? What's Amazon doing? Google, Apple, et cetera, right? Um, because they could jump into this space quickly. It yeah. comes to machine learning and AI and kind of take it over. So, um, but we've been saying that for years that they could come in and take it over, but they haven't. Yeah, yeah. Is it, yeah, do they want to deal with what we're dealing with with compliance tools? <laughs> compliance, tool, regulatory. All the et cetera, SEC et and FINRA rules and regulations, yeah, yeah. right? There's, There's a lot, a lot there. to comply with. And it, it's, it's, and the compliance is so, it's getting worse because we have more um, avenues of communication, like with SMS and personal texting. We saw that last year. Um, I'm kind of shifting gears here, but yeah, yeah. we saw that last year with, you know, we had over $2 billion worth of fines given to a lot of the the financial institutions because of personal texting. And um, yeah, so I, I don't know if, if uh, those big firms will ever, those Googles of the world will ever want to get into this space. Yeah, it's... My, I mean, you've been in the space a lot longer than me, but my time in financial services, it's been kind of interesting, just like the pace of technology adoption, almost everything else. And then you have like maybe financial services and probably healthcare. At least I know my experience with healthcare has been pretty archaic. Um, I guess I kind of wonder, like, do you have an intuition on maybe where financial services can continue to be disrupted. Like, I feel like a lot of the technology we see specifically for advisors, I guess, because that's what I, what we both know is it's, it seems very front end facing with client type interaction, right? Like you've got, you know, all these great risk tools or planning tools or marketing tools, but ultimately it's all designed at kind of efficiently getting in front of a client, which I guess in regards to compliance is you know, challenging. There's always that sort of tension. But do you see any other areas that are kind of like interesting for, you know, ways to make financial services generally better for people? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think there's still, there's always going to be something to do in technology and finance to make it better for, for the, the consumer or the investor, right? Uh, I had a conversation with a, a good friend of mine, David Line, who built Orange and, and exited Orange, uh, sold okay. that company a while back. And he's building something that is interesting now um, where he's focused on kind of like the, the uh, he's focused on the millennial generation, that younger generation that is, and this is a great idea. Um, and I hope we, we have an NDA. If not, we have to block this out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I can <laughs> edit all that in post-production right. if we need to. So. Right, right. So. Um, so anyway, David David has this idea where, and I believe he's already building it around uh, the millennials or the younger generations because they have such a work life balance, right? You know, my generation and older, we're kind of that that I think Gen X was like that last generation to be like work, 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 work. Oh, yeah. life balance like this other part of vacation over here happens when when I, we don't know. We kind of think we go on vacation half the time these days, but we don't because we're still yeah. connected. Uh, the younger generation, they cut it off, right? They they know how to cut it off. They're almost like the Europeans have been for years, right? <laughs> they go on holiday and they yeah. they disconnect completely. They're not responding to emails. The younger generation here in the U.S. is finally doing that, right? They're saying, hey, I, I might be 25 years old and I have a full-time job with Microsoft, but hey, I want to go and travel you know, the world for the next you know, three months or six months. Yeah. 
they're and they're and they do it right. They're like, hey, I don't care if I lose my job, I'm going to do this. Yeah. And how do you how do you plan for that? Right. It's not like yeah. our Gen X and, and older where yeah, we work, we work, we save, we save. You know, over time, it compounds, growth, etc. Look at the charts, right? Look, yeah. historical returns aren't the same, but you know, the charts look pretty good. The younger generation's like, okay, if you're going to go on this six months sabbatical, right, uh, every every year or every other year, yeah, um, or you have this hobby that takes up a lot of time as well. How do you pay for that hobby and those trips and still save to you know, with your financial planner and save to sure. yeah. reach your goals? Right. So it's an interesting concept. It's an interesting dynamics around the younger generations and how financial advisors will have to, you know, change and 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 adapt to what they're doing and how they, you know, their lifestyle, which is completely different from from ours. So I think that's something that technology will have to kind of figure out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. More of that financial wellness behavioral science stuff that that you hear from like Jordan Hutchinson and Daniel Crosby yeah. and those guys. So I think we'll we'll see more of that uh, in the next five years. Yeah, it's always been the hardest thing for me as like a core millennial and like having friends who are in, you know, having families and their first kids and buying homes and stuff like they're in that core sort of planning demographic. I'm always surprised at like how often people know better but they don't ultimately do anything. So like a case in point, I was talking to the guy who does my taxes and he definitely knows better, but he told me that he had evaluated, you know, getting life insurance policies and had done all the work and then was right there and then just didn't buy them, you know? And I feel like that's kind of the challenge with just a lot of people is like just getting them engaged to, to the end and to follow through. So, you know, if your buddy's got an idea on that for anyone, he'll probably end up doing really well. Um, but that to me has always seemed like the hardest thing for people is they know better, but they're people and they go chase, you know, the trip in Japan or the concert or, you know, surfing or whatever. Um, right. So yeah, if whoever can crack that, I think will do incredibly well. Yeah, I think it'll do well. And, and then you also have to build in machine learning into some of these financial plans that will help with it, right? So take the data that is coming in from like a Fidelity or a Schwab or any of these companies that are financial planning tools, they're they're capturing all this data. Then there's a lot of data out there, public data, that you can bring in and use algorithms and simple algorithms to give you some kind of ranges for uh, for different generations and how to invest the money and where to put it, right? So I think there's there's always going to be a lot that you could do with technology. Number one, especially in finance, but it has to be evolving, has to be changing, has to there has to be options. And I believe machine learning uh, bringing more of that data to help people um, achieve their goals or financial goals uh, be, will be there in the next three to five years, if if not in the next year. So we'll. we'll that's something that that I, I keep an eye on because it's interesting to see how how can these financial planning tools help me without having to give them a ton of data, right? It should yeah. already be in there. There's so much public information out there. It should, it should just come in. So, uh, so we'll see. I mean, there, there's one. There's a few companies like FP Alpha, you know, Right Capital's doing well, um, NewRetirement.com. There's there's a lot of companies out there that are thinking this way, and and, and it'll benefit uh, the, the investor in the end. Yeah. How, how uh, 
in your personal life, if you're open to it, like how do you think about all these tools? Like you're obviously very in touch with the space. Like, do you use a lot of this stuff or are you more kind of traditional Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs guy, like deal with it. Don't talk to me. Thing. Yeah. So that's a great question, Ben, because, you know, my, my, my background and experience in life in general is a little bit different from everyone else's because I had, um, and, and I wrote some papers on this, you know, the, Simon Sinek's always like, what's your why, right? Yeah. And the totem was really what was my why. Because <clears throat> in 2008, my son was born, my second child, son was born, but he's born with um, what they call Vater syndrome, right? And that's an acronym for a different, you know, parts of the body that don't work or aren't connected or, or there's a malfunction, right? So. Yeah. It's um, so that was like a you know big curveball. So how do you how do you adjust your whole life, right? You have two incomes, you have two, sure. um, you have a nice house, you you're in the suburbs, and then also during two thousand eight, going into two thousand nine, we have the Great Recession, right? Yeah. So all of that at once is like, wow, like how do I how do Rant I manage this going forward? Like how yeah. much is this going to cost me? Does insurance cover it? Who's going to work? Who's not going to work? Who's going to save? So planning, talk about financial planning or just planning in general for a life event like that was, wasn't expected. So, um, you know, there's, there's some products out there uh, that are starting to look at those life events and almost try to predict them for you. And I don't think they're ever really predictable, but they can give you some sense of, yeah. of, of change or, or basic life events like marriage or, or having a child or things like that. But that's what really made me dive into technology more so and look at these financial planning tools and work with them and figure out how do I, you know, you know, what's my new budget, right? How do I, I plan for one income and, you know, what do we need to change in our life? Do we downsize? Do we, do we rent? Do we, you know, there was a yeah. lot of questions that technology helped me solve for. So mm-hmm. that's from that point on. And I was in technology before, but that's when I really started to use technology more than, than I ever did for, for planning, especially financial planning. Yeah. So it's i feel like people who i talk to who are involved in financial services generally do have like a sort of founding like what's your why story like that mine was mine was similar like my parents again uh so i'm a little bit younger but i was graduating high school in 2008 and my dad lost uh, i mean he was an industrial real estate broker in greater sacramento and if you know anything about you know that industrial real estate market up here it just basically died. Um, and we also, lost, yeah, we, well, Northern California was pretty bad. Um, but the, the, the long story short is that ultimately we lost a house and that caused a number of problems in the family and all this stuff. And I was going through college, just trying to figure out what the heck just happened. And I didn't know what I wanted to do for school at the time. So I figured, you know, this finance thing might, at least give me enough of a base to be a little more prepared providing this ever happens again, which, you know, maybe we're on the precipice of, we'll, we'll find out. Um, but yeah, like, I mean, similar to you, the, the why is really, you know, this happened to me. How do I, how do I navigate this and, you know, try to excel through it rather than sort of be burdened by it. Right. Right. Uh, Yeah. And, and there's, there's, you know, the, the financial advisors, they have a lot of tools to choose from, right? Which is great. And those those that technology in, in my in the fintech industry, rec tech, insure tech, whatever you want to call it, it's great to have entrepreneurs and other products 
keep coming to market because those products are being built to solve for the why, right? And then these advisors utilize those tools to help the investor achieve their goals and weather the storms, right? Because there's been more storms recently than than we've seen in a while. Um, yeah, we had the nice bull market, but before that, that was a pretty big blimp in the radar, right? Yeah. And, and then now we're starting to see a little bit of that uh, again. And uh, that the panic shouldn't be setting in. The people shouldn't be panicking, right? They should be comfortable with the plan that they have. If and if they stick to their plan, yeah, they may may need to adjust a few things here and there. But you know, that's what you do every year. Like every company builds and looks at their business plan for the next year, next three years, next five years out. Like, how do we get there? What do we need to achieve? Um, and that's what people should be doing with their finances as well as talking with financial advisors and. What are we what are we planning for? You know, a lot of people are planning for retirement. How do we get there? How do we change? What do we need to change during that process of getting to that end goal? And then when we get to that end goal, you know, do we have enough money to keep going and yeah. live the rest of our life? So there's a, there's there's technology out there that will help. And, and a lot of people, you don't even need a financial advisor. Financial advisor will definitely help you, right? Sure. And guide yeah. you along the way. <laughs> Yeah, give you expert advice, our advisors. Right? Disclosure. Yeah, we love our. But advice. there, there are tools out there online that could help you get started without a financial advisor until you build up enough, um, you know, enough assets to to then you know, work with a financial advisor. So I think that's the other side of it. Is there's a lot more online tools today for people that feel that they don't have enough money to go work with a financial advisor that will help them get to the point where they will be able to work with a financial advisor. What a so I know for a lot of people, just awareness of what to do is like just a big challenge, right? Like, like we didn't even know that this was an option or that these tools are available. And I think one thing I personally always come back to is just education. And that I think about even my finance degree um, at, at school, like there there wasn't a hell of a lot of personal finance and just like basic steps for people to take like sure i learned how to price a derivative in black shoals but do i use that in my day-to-day no i don't and like i I guess i wonder maybe uh what your thoughts are just about you know very basic personal finance education because i think if my belief is that if it was taught say four years like a semester each in high school I think a lot of people would be on a much better track. You wouldn't have so much student debt. People would be buying homes sooner. They'd be setting themselves up better. Um, I guess, I, I don't know, have, have you thought much about that at all and what the implications of sort of better personal finance looks like? Yeah, I think it, you, you hit the nail on the head. It starts with, you know, elementary school, right? Just, you know, grade school. Um, if they could start at least in high school talking about having a class for all the kids that they have to take to graduate, right? And it's just basic, you know, numbers, just how to invest, how to budget, how to balance a checkbook, things like that, that they don't, they, they don't even teach you that in college, right? Um, you know, it's pretty common sense by the time you get to college, but still, I mean, that all should be taught. Like, how do you, how do you invest? Why do you invest? Where do you invest? What's a 401k? What's a Roth? What's a, you know, regular IRA, things like that. And people, the good thing about technology is it, you could Google anything, right? You could find yeah. information on all this out there, but are they really doing it? It'd be great to start with the foundation of teaching in school, at least in high school, 
So yeah. then when they go on to college or even if they don't go on to college, they have a, a better understanding and then they could educate themselves even more by going online and, and watching videos or reading about it because you, there's so much out there that you, you could look at and read and, and find out about investments. And there's also a lot of advertisements that are pushing things, right? Uh, different platforms. I, I, I see platforms around crowdfunding. I see platforms around private equity investments for non-accredited investors and things like that that you never yeah. saw before. So there's a lot, there is a lot out there. Um, but at the end of the day, if you just focus on you know the core, if if they have a foundation and they know, okay, here's ETFs and stocks and mutual funds and things and annuities and uh, et cetera, um, they could start building that that process with a conservative portfolio, right? With yeah. anybody, any financial institution out there. Yeah. Yeah. Do, uh, this is kind of random. Do you, do you remember your first investment? Like the very Ooh. first one or what comes to mind? Um, first, my first investment was a 401k through IBM, right? Okay. So that was picking mutual funds, right? Diversifying large bids. Yeah. Yeah. yeah some, right. Uh, and I was young, it was about, I think 22. Right. So, yeah. um, yeah, so I was overly aggressive, which I, I should be, yeah. <laughs> um, which I thought I should be until I did a little bit more research and when I built out totem risk. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I found out you, you know, everyone's like, oh, you need to be really risky when you're young. But the problem with that, what, with the research I found, you know, a number of years ago is that if you're really risky when you're young and you lose it all, you know, then, you know, you have nothing to compound later. So it's, it's good to be, you know, somewhat conservative to start. Right. And then as you get to more of your peak years, which are your late 30s, 40s, into your 50s, and really your, your peak career is, I think, like early 40s to about 52. Yeah. When you make the majority of your money, that's when you can actually take on more risk because you have more money and it's already compounded to some degree that gotcha. you can take on a lot more risk at that point than, than you could earlier or later. Right. Interesting. So mm-hmm. that's, that's actually, huh? So, like, you're 25, you're in your first job, you're building an asset base. Like your advice sounds like is what? Just do kind of like market exposure and just focus on the savings aspect and sort of build that critical mass and then go do? Yeah, well, I think the first thing everyone should do is is build uh, an emergency savings account if they don't have any student loans or anything like that. First, if sure. you have student loans or anything, you want to kind of focus on paying that down before you invest in anything. Yep. But then you build a nest egg, like have three to six months of savings set aside that you don't touch ever in, in, in case like, you know, a life event happens that you need it, right? It's there yeah. for you. Then after you build that nest egg or that emergency fund, then start to invest, right? Then, you know, start small, you know, work with a planner or diversify like large, mid, small, um, some bonds, stuff like that to start, uh, or even just buy the S&P 500 index, right? <laughs> buy that. Yeah. Uh, and Two basis points. Yeah. That's in that. It's really, your the fees are so low that you know, it's practically free these days. And, you know, start putting money into that. And over time, that's going to start to compound. And once you build an, an, an you know a, a good you know foundation of 50, 100, 150,000 or more, you know financial advisors will be there, right? They'll, they'll start to talk to you, whether it's you know through an online um, uh, platform or you know in person or both. Yeah. So it's, it's all it's all out there. What would you say uh, if somebody's looking to hire an advisor maybe for the first time? What would you say are the th- the couple of things you look for? Like what? Uh, uh, how should people approach the yeah. myriad type of advisors that exist out there? 
Oh, I, that, I shouldn't answer this. <laughs> I've been in this industry too long. Yeah, uh, that's a tough question to be honest about. Right? <laughs> now, um, uh, seriously, I, it's it's um, a lot of financial advisors. It's more of a, a relationship because financial. If you feel comfortable working with a with a person, um, you're, you're you're whether it's you know, a broker dealer through you know, a wirehouse or, you know, a big wirehouse or like Merrill or Morgan or, um, you know, LPL or Raymond James advisor, Satara advisor, or an RAA. It's really that relationship. Real, that, that's what I've seen in the industry over, over 20 years is yeah. people gravitate towards somebody that they feel comfortable with, right? Sure. So go interview, go talk to a number of financial advisors, whether it's an RAA or a broker dealer or a big wirehouse and see if you, if there's a fit there. Because at the end of the day, um, these financial advisors have a plethora of data and information from huge investment teams that that data is then passed down to them to help them make the right decisions and compliance, right? To, yeah, to compliance yeah. and the right decisions through compliance to pass down to their clients, right? So these advisors aren't sitting there just stock picking, right? Um, yeah, there are some advisors out there that, that will do that for you if that's the risk that you want to take or that's how you want to invest. Sometimes you know, investing in certain blue chip stocks is not a risk. So really, it's it, at the end of the day, I think it comes down to a relationship. But also, you want to do your homework. There's information that you can do background checks on you know, FINRA.org and SEC and, and check to make sure that this advisor is... It doesn't yeah. have too many yeah. outstanding items. <laughs> right. Just reputable. They've been in the industry. They're, yeah. they're registered. They're, you know, um, and, you know, ask questions, inter- interview them like that, like they're going to interview you to make sure that you're comfortable, you know, passing them your money and, and investing it. So uh, really, I, I think at the end of the day, from what I see, it comes down to relationships because yeah. I talk to, I, I, I live in a, in a, a decent neighborhood that, um, has a lot of advisors, I'm sure. <laughs> There's a, there are a number of advisors in here and a lot of entrepreneurs. And you know, when I remember when ETFs came out and people were like, Larry, what's an ETF? Right. They they didn't even know. And then a couple of years later, they would ask me to say, What's an ETF again? Or I'd be talking about it. So it people are in different industries, they're not in finance, right? Yeah. And that's why they hire financial financial advisors. Uh, but at the end of the day, again, I think it comes down to the relationship and trust. I think that's I think that definitely makes sense. Like what I'm kind of hearing there is like when you when I think about a relationship and I don't work with an advisor currently, but at some point, probably in the near future, but um I would want to have like the actual back and forth, I think. Like it doesn't necessarily matter where you sit, like you said, whether it's wirehouse bro- broker dealer, RA, whatever. I guess I would want to know that like, you know, I can actually approach you and we can actually really work and sort of you know play tennis and go back and forth together on getting things figured out because i think uh for a lot of people like they hear about like a financial plan and it's like one thing you do it one time and then you know you're done right and you know that couldn't be further from the truth because life changes so quickly like we kind of touched on um but yeah it does uh, and the other thing is that the advisors have they have the technology to offer to the clients these days. And if your advisor doesn't have the technology that, that you're looking for, then go look for another advisor because they should have client portals, information that you can log in, see all your information, a full transparency at any time, whether it's on an app or through a desktop. Um, yeah. it should, it's all out there today. So 
you could check, you know, you could check your, you know, I'm sure a lot of retirees are always looking at their, their <laughs> investments on a daily basis, sometimes too much. And yeah. then there's other, other, you know, investors that don't look at it at all. They're like, Hey, my advisor has it. I'll meet with him maybe once a quarter or once a year or twice a year. Um, and they want hands off. Right. And yeah. um, that's what I, I usually hear though, is the majority of investors, once they build that relationship, they're really not even looking at their investments in their plan because unless something changes, right. Yeah. And that's the only time they're really calling their advisors, like something life changed, life event changed, or they're going on a trip. They want to make sure they could afford it and things like that. Um, so again, that technology is there where they can kind of play with it online without even having to call their advisor. Yeah. Uh, if yeah. Trip or, not, or that, that boat or yacht or whatever, yeah. <laughs> or even getting to retirement. Am I ever going to retire? Right? Yeah. So, uh, that's what I was thinking. Like, am I ever going to retire? <laughs> well, I mean, I've uh, I've been reading. Um, so I had Rick Edelman on uh, a couple of podcasts ago last year, and I've been reading one of his books. Um, I'll pull it up here real quick. But one of the things he talks about in it is uh, your planning timeline and how long people can actually live these days. So, like, right? You know, the most advisors probably run plans to. 85 90 95 in there um one of rick's thoughts is that there's a potential that you could live potentially to 100 110 maybe even 120 and easily now how do you how do you think about that how do you plan for that you know it's just uh i mean that to me was something i'd never even considered like could i make 120 like that seems insane I, I don't I don't want to make 120, but my, <laughs> grand, my grandfather made it to 96 and I thought that was a long life. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. 96, if I have to plan to that, that's a long, that's a long way out. Um, you know, luckily for him, you know, back then he his company that he worked for, um, you know, through his career, it was he had a pension to fall back on. Yeah. Uh, right. And then social security. Um, the majority of people these days don't have pensions, right? And who knows if social security is gonna be around by the time. You know, Gen X, you know, starts to retire. So, yeah, um, yeah, I think we have to do a lot more planning than than the older generations. Yeah, yeah. That and that book, if you were curious, is "The Truth About Your Future" by Rick Edelman. So, shout out to Rick. Um, Definitely check that out. Well, let's see. So, I know you got to get going here, Larry. Uh, anything you want to sort of wrap up with? Any other final thoughts? Things? Go check out Presults. Yeah, yeah, definitely go check out Presults, uh, presults.com. The, the, I, I believe that we we are building the future for uh, archiving and compliance for, for the financial sector. Um, we're trying to make it as easy and efficient uh, for the end user. And we hope that by the end of this year or even into early next year, it's, you know, with machine learning, we can make the processes so simple that you could almost set it and forget it. And not have to worry about it, right? And that's that's the end goal is to to build that product and solve for the problems to make the the, the end user's life a lot more easy and efficient. And and um, we're we're working on it. We'll get there. So yeah, uh, yeah. Check out presales.com. I'd love to to have any conversations with you. A, a great team. Um, and that's the other thing is is building the right team when you're an entrepreneur. Um, you know, we could probably talk about that for a whole other podcast, but. Um, I, I believe we have uh, an exceptional team here at Presults and, and client experience is, is top of mind for us. So um, love well, to have you. Got, you, got a, you got a great sales leader and then you're going to have a, a great new uh, CX person too. So that's right. That's right. Yeah. 
Yeah, shout out to We have great, great technology, great developers, great CTO. Um, yeah, I, I, I really enjoy our, our team. We're very, uh, we're, we're, we're open, we're transparent. Uh, we tell it like it is. We, we work on every, every issue that comes up. Uh, until it's resolved <clears throat> and it doesn't just hang out there. So um, that's the right right kind of team that you want to have in place to build a successful company. For sure. Well, cool. Let's uh, let's leave it there. Larry, thanks for coming. Um, you're welcome back anytime. Thank you, yeah, thank you, Beth. This has been great. Enjoyed it. Cool. All right. We'll talk to you. Take care. Thank you.